Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, Amy Wright talks with Andrew Ferris, co-founder and primary songwriter for NXS, a band that sold over 50 million records worldwide. In 2016, Andrew Ferris was inducted into the Australian Songwriter Hall of Fame for his contributions to the music industry. He's been performing and writing for more than 40 years. He likes to split his time between Australia and Nashville, where you can find him performing in famous spots like the Bluebird Cafe. He's here today to chat with Amy Wright about his recently released self-titled debut album, which is steadily climbing the charts, and to discuss his dynamic career and life in music. So without further ado, from Diddy TV, this is Insights with Amy Wright and Andrew Ferris. Welcome, Andrew, first of all, to Diddy TV. Thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you, Amy. I can't wait for everyone to hear the whole new album, which is titled Andrew Ferris. Um, but uh, so you grew up, you're in Nashville right now, but you grew up and you live most of your time in Australia? Yeah, I grew up in uh, the, remo- the most remote geographical city in the world, which is Perth in Western Australia. And I lived there till I was 12. The only thing I, of, of great musical significance in between is I learned to play piano when I was nine. Um, and then I also took a trip to London uh, by ship because uh, my father I had met my mother who was Australian and my dad was originally from London in England. Um, and he had come out at the end of World War II. He hadn't been back to see his parents or my grandparents. So he put us boys, my brothers and I, on a ship and we went to London. And in those years, you know, you didn't fly anywhere. Um, you usually went by ship or you're in the military, you might have flown somewhere, I guess, where you were very, very wealthy. Most people didn't fly everywhere. And so we went by ship. And when I got there, you know, it wasn't a time when a lot of people, uh, you, know, um, you know, would travel a lot. So other Australians heard that we were there. And we got invited to go to a variety television show, my brothers and I, my dad and mom. And out walked the Beatles, they played. And uh, I, we saw them, that was the first band I saw with my brothers. And um, we were in a little television studio and they're right in front of us. They put us right down the front because we were kids, you know. And later on, I, uh, my older brother, Tim, who was in, in excess and my younger brother, John as well, um, obviously as Michael and Gary and Kirk as members of later on within excess, but as brothers, Tim and I went to dad and we said, was that true? Did we actually, like, we saw the Beatles. I remember that, but did we, what happened? Like, what, what else happened? He goes, well, afterwards you went and talked to him. I'm like, we, we did what? He <laughs> said, yeah, you went over and you talked to him. And we're like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, I, and then I thought back of it and I thought, well, actually that makes sense because we were little, just young kids. And it's nice actually when, you, when you're out performing and, and you're fe- feeling overwhelmed and there's a lot of adults running around, you know, when you're doing live performance stuff. And children uh, are so much simpler because they, they just want the, the simplicity of things, you know. So they were probably happy talking to us guys, you know. Um, and um, I think later on my younger brother John, had, had um, John Farris, had, I think he'd, he'd met up with George Harrison or something somewhere along the line, but I, I'd never, uh, and I'd, yeah, but I, I'd never, I don't, I don't remember meeting any of those other uh, Beatles, no, no. 
Do you attribute that experience for your love of music or kind of getting you started? Yeah, that's where I was kind of heading. Sorry, I've been a bit verbose there. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think seeing the Beatles, uh, when we went back to Australia, you know, we started pretending we were in a band and had well, tennis rackets or whatever, you know, and then started fooling around on instruments. My younger brother learnt to play drums and my older brother learnt to play guitar classically, you know. Um, and I used to sneak into his bedroom when he wasn't looking and pick up his guitar, so I taught myself to play the guitar. I was never trained to play a guitar. And, um, and then later on, we didn't play together for a long time. He, uh, we, the last thing we wanted to do was to be near each other as brothers. <laughs> of we course. wanted to play, yeah, right, because we were, especially as teenagers. And then so I started forming my own band with other people, and I met Michael Hutchins uh, in a schoolyard where I was, it's a, look, it's a really complicated story. Basically, I was in a high school I wasn't supposed to be in um, because the government hadn't finished building this other high school. So they put us kids in this other high school and nobody wanted us there. The parents didn't want us there. We were just an embarrassment and the government didn't know what to do with us. And amongst all that, in walks Michael, who had grown up, well, he was born in Australia, but he'd grown up in Hong Kong. And so when he, uh, when he came into the schoolyard, I knew, I knew that he, he was going to get picked on because I knew, I understood the politics of where we were and the situation we were already in as little kids, you know, young, very young teenagers. And I was pretty good at sports when I was younger, you know, certain sports. And so a bigger friend of mine and me went over and basically these other guys were hassling him and he said, no, we're, you're going to leave him alone. And we pulled it off. <laughs> We pulled it off and they walked away, you know. And, and so he, he came he said, who are you guys? And we said, well, we're sitting over here. Come sit with us. So he came over and that's how I met him. And then later on, we, we just, we didn't ever talk, this is the funny part, we never talked about music. We talked about motorbikes and we talked about girls, talked about lots of stuff, you know. But we didn't talk about music. That was, that came later. He then, I didn't see him for a long time. He went to Los Angeles. He got... Uh, his mother had a job there working in Hollywood and Michael went to North Hollywood High School uh, for quite a while. And then when he came back to Australia, he changed a lot. His hair had grown a lot and he had all this other thing he, he was bringing with him. And I, I realised that when I started talking to him, this isn't like some of the other guys I'm going to school with. He's, he's changed, you know. And then we started talking about music then. We started talking about, he used to write a lot of lyrics. He wasn't a singer. He used to mainly write poetry, you know, on prose and stuff. Whereas most of the guys at my age at that point wanted to talk about football or girls or beer or whatever they wanted, you know. They wanted to talk about poetry, you know. And I suddenly realised, well, he, you know, he, he's different. He's still different, you know. Um, and then that's how we got on. And we, we started, I eventually said, why don't we start writing songs together? And so that then was that led then, cut a long story short, is my brothers then got involved because uh, they, they liked my band that I had with Michael and Gary, the bass player. So Gary, Michael and myself were already in a band. Then my brothers Tim and John and Kirk, Tim's best friend, came along. That's how the band started. That's how In Excess started. Yeah. What did you first call yourself? Because it wasn't In Excess. It was another name, no, right? No, we were, we were called the Farris Brothers. My name's Andrew Farris. I'm the middle one. My older brother's name's Tim. 
My younger brother's name is John. We have a sister as well, Alison. And I did try to teach her the bass, but she said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Well, I, you I need tried a fan. <laughs> yeah, well, it could have been like, you know, yeah, the sound of music or something, you know. Um, right, you know. Um, but there's been some very talented family bands, you know. And ironically, too, you know, with the Farris brothers um, in an excess is like ACDC with Malcolm and Angus Young and, and the Bee Gees, too. A lot, a, a lot of people don't realize the Bee Gees spent a lot of time in Australia, you know as well, when they were younger, yeah. So um, who came up with the name NXS then? That's a good question. Actually, I think it was, <laughs> we were playing a show uh, somewhere north of Sydney along the coast, and um, I think it was someone from the road crew walked up to us and said, um, you know, uh, NXS, and we're like, yeah, we didn't sort of get it quite then. And they're like, no, the four letters, you know, and we're like, that is absolutely genius, right? So right there. And, of course, Michael loved it because he didn't, you know, we were the Farris brothers and there was a little bit too much of that. You know, he wanted to be, you know, that guy, you know, which I can understand. It's definitely a lead singer thing. You've got to have that to be a great lead singer, you know. And um, so we embraced the name and we loved it and off we went. Yeah. So when did you get your first uh um, signing to a label. When was that? Oh, well, that's a good question. That would have been around about late 79, early 1980. And that was kind of all really bizarre, that part. I, you know, I don't think any of us really understood the recording nature of what we were doing as a band until about the third album that we released, the Shabu Shabar. Up to that point, all of our uh, studio recordings were like a soundtrack to our live gigs. Most of the songs we were playing were designed to play live in pubs, you know, in, in, a, in, in bawdy, you know, kind of drinking holes where people were smoking and they get in fist fights and everyone's drinking and it was pretty crazy stuff. It's like where ACDC came out of another, a lot of other pub bands. And so we designed our music around that atmosphere rather than designing it around recording, you know. And it wasn't until later we began to realise especially when we start to travel overseas. No, 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 we go the other way around. We have to start recording for recording's sake, not for, you know, as a support for the live show, you know. Um, hmm. Was, were you mostly playing in Australia at that time? Or? Yeah, well, we couldn't yeah. afford to eat even, you know, <laughs> but we were lucky in one way. We, we used to play nine, nine gigs a week, we'd play Seven days a week, we play two shows on a Saturday and then two shows on a Sunday. And we just played music all the time, everywhere, but we had no money. It was terrible. And I remember one day our manager at the time, who's sadly passed away since, he used to say to us, oh, if you're starving, you can always buy a bag of oranges. So we used to give him a lot of stick about that later on. You know. <laughs> so you, when did you actually get your first break outside of Australia? Was that with Shabu Shabu or was it later? Um, yeah, with Shabu Shabar, that's how you Shibu pronounce Shibar. that. Yeah, Sorry. my brother yeah. came up with that name for the album, Tim, yeah. Um, I still don't know what it means, but anyway, um, he, uh, well, we, we really had a fortunate experience with Shabu Shabar because the record producer, Mark Opitz, had worked with ACDC and a lot of other, back then, very, very important bands like Cold Chisel um, and the Divinals, some really, really great people very, very clever people. And 
we started recording with him and those recordings we started to make began to, we began to realize that we could really design a sound that was very different than anything that we had heard or knew of. And we stopped trying to copy other people, if you know what I mean, and started just to embrace the animal that we were as a group of people. We stopped trying to well, sound like them, we want to sound like them, and you know, we stopped all that and just started to sound like us. You know? um, hmm. So what was your first big break outside? What's, what album was well, it? Well, okay, yeah, Shabu Shabu, and then we had a single called um, The One Thing, and, mm-hmm. and we came out at the same time as MTV started. So our band was one of those bands that were fortunate enough to have lots of videos, and, and because of the tyranny of distance, between Australia and the United States, or the world, really, with Australia. You know, it's very, very geographically remote from, from other countries, apart from Asia and New Zealand. But, um, you know, we started making all these videos very early on in our career. And fortunately, when MTV started, they said, do you have any videos? And we were like, yeah, we got heaps of them. Do you want them? They're like, sure. And so they couldn't get enough of them. So we kept giving them all these videos we'd made. And then we had made videos for The One Thing and for Don't Change. And if you talk about, you know, uh, career breaks right there, that song Don't Change, uh, like, for example, Bruce Springsteen, who I'm a huge fan of, he covered that song when he came down to Australia uh, to perform live a while back. Um, Yeah, and that's when you begin to sort of realise that we were beginning to connect with people. You know, you sort of think at first, oh, do we matter? What happened then? What was that? What was all that about? You know, and the next minute you, you see other people reacting or covering songs or, or, you know, and then we started performing in bigger and bigger and bigger venues, you know, slowly but surely. And then that happened internationally. And we ended up working in over 50 countries. Mm. What do you think MTV did for NXS? Because it mm. really broke so many bands because it was the first time there was that visual associated with a song. Before that, that wasn't a thing, really. No, that's right. Actually, that's true. And also, one of our videos, we had a song. We, we shot many videos, but one of them was a song called What You Need. And uh, I remember um, Mick Jagger, who used to come along to our shows when we were much younger. He came and saw us at the Royal Albert Hall in London in one of the first shows we did in London around about 83 or 84 or something. And then, so he and Michael Hutchins knew each other. And then we shot this video called What You Need. And back then there wasn't the computer technology, or at least outside of Hollywood, I guess, that was available to the consumer to make the kind of visual products you can make today. And so we wanted to make a really different video for the song What You Need. And so we shot this film, if you like, but with a motor drive camera and then had the, each individual negative on the film hand colored. So it was almost like a running, it was, it was real, but it had been animated at the same time. And Mick Jagger called Michael and said, how, how did you do that? You know, where, where did you find the technology? And we said, oh, we took the film down to the local <laughs> chemist and it cost us 50 bucks. You know? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I think that was what a lot of that era was like. I think it was quite an exciting era because you, you really had to push boundaries to, to discover things, to try things, you know. Um, 
you know, with the videos. And, um, you know, we shot three videos, for example, in Czechoslovakia, in the beautiful city in Prague, uh, when it was still, uh, you know, communist. Um, and we were followed around all the time by, by the government people because we were in a communist country shooting videos, you know. And um, the video uh, producer, Ian Brown, I think his name was, uh, big Scottish fella, and he could see these two guys in trench coats with the pork pie hats on the other side of the bridge in Prague, and they were just pretending to read newspapers, you know, while we were shooting these videos. So he walks over the bridge and he goes, you don't need to stand there pretending that you're not watching us. You need to come over here and have some storage now here with us. So they, sure enough, they walk over the bridge and he puts down some shot glasses and they have a shot of vodka each. And they seemed happy afterwards. They went everywhere with us, you know, and we could go anywhere we wanted in the city. But that was one thing, too. I remember shooting those videos. It wasn't so much the shooting of the videos and it wasn't even so much trying to come up with something technologically interesting, we began to realize the cultural part of it was just as interesting. So we, that's why we went to Czechoslovakia. We also went to Japan and shot videos. We had a, we shot videos out on a wharf with a, with a, with a Japanese biker gang uh, on one video for Original Sin. And then we went and also shot another video at the oldest temple, a uh, Buddhist temple in Tokyo. Um, and they'd never ever had Westerners in that temple ever shoot a video ever. And uh, the head monk, uh, the Japanese head monk, came over to Michael and he was talking to us and, and um, he said, um, it's so nice that you're here. And, and we said, well, we are overwhelmed because we had heard that for 850 years, you've never had, you know, foreigners or gaijin or whatever come in to the temple here and do anything except you know, pay respect for what the temple is. And, and we said, why, why us, these young guys from Australia, why, why are you letting us shoot this video in this ancient temple? And he goes, well, that's because I like to play the trumpet. And he goes down, he picks up the <laughs> trumpet. He goes, da, 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 this trumpet, right? And we're going, that's the reason after 850 years? You know? <laughs> you know? But I thought that was a very Buddhist no. thing right there, you know, like it's very, you know. Um, very that human. is hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's a true story. Um, but when you talk about these videos, it, to me it wasn't so much about the videos. I found the whole thing just fascinating. Uh, uh, the, the, the construction of the videos, the, how it all came together, the different people we work with, um, you know, the different video directors and, and the things that they all did or didn't do and how they did them. You know, it was all pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what video does for for songs and for artists because it's that real connection between a fan and the artist that you can imagine but when you see it in video form it's just a different it sticks in your head. I think that was the beauty of MTV. You know, all those all those videos just, you know, they stick in your head and you go back and you watch them now and they're still there. You still well, that, remember them. That's true. And in fact, my wife, Marley, and I, the other night, we watched um, an 80s rerun of, of videos. And um, some of them I, I recognized, and a lot of the music behind the videos was pretty cool too. But what struck me from watching those videos, and I found really interesting, it struck us both actually, was how what was banned back in the 80s is like, 
you know, compared to what, you know, what you can access on a flat screen now, you know, it was so almost cute, you know, um, you know, um, the reasons why they were banning things back then, you know. So what was it like to go from being a kid in Australia to being globally famous? Well, yeah, I, 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 never, really, I never really thought of it quite like that until one day I went back home from one of the tours. We used to do these long tours. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd go away for three or six months. Um, we'd live on tour buses, roll around in different countries or whatever. Um, and... Um, one day I, I got back to my home in the suburbs when I still lived in the suburbs. I don't live in the suburbs of the city anymore. I live kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, um, but back then I'd come home and there was a, a retired Portuguese army sergeant who owned the house next door to me. And he'd been mowing his lawn and I, I was out doing whatever I was doing. I said, do you want to have a beer? He said, sure. And he used to like drying fish in the shed out the back. <laughs> And he salted them, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm talking to him, and I'm saying, you know, he, I go, how's your day been? Joe, that was his name. How's your day? He's, yeah, day's been good. Yeah, yeah. And um, he says, what have you been doing? I, and I said, oh, well, we were rolling around in a bus, um, me and these other guys, and we played at 10,000 people a night. And he sort of looks at me for a minute, and he goes, okay. And, um, and uh, so I think the, <laughs> the thing I'm trying to say is, the reality of what you actually do when you're a performer and, and the music connection part of it, the, the, it's, the, it's the connection with, with people who don't know you. If you're a part of a community, let's say, and you just go down and you play at the local pub, you know, um, you know or you play at the local theatre and all the, your neighbours and all your friends know who you are and that's what you do and you go play there, you're not really famous. You're just that guy that goes down to the theatre or goes down the right and plays at the little bar. That's but the moment you're involved in anything to do with broad media and and you, you're getting broadcast out everywhere. Everyone's paying attention to what you're doing and saying and what you look like and you know all the rest of it. You know that's how it works. You know? Well, because your songs were famous in so many countries and um, listened to and charted in so many countries, do you find it? different or how do you find it when a song is charting at number one in this country number 30 in another country or do you find it to Mm. be a big mystery or I think that's a really good question I think where I have realized how fortunate I am as a songwriter is to have worked with a group like in excess my brothers uh, Tim and John and Michael Kirk and Gary we we really did whatever it took. I don't ever remember any one of us saying, I can't do that or, or we're not going to go here or I'm not going to do that or, you know, we just did whatever we needed to do. And I have a huge respect for those guys because I know what they did because I was there with them. Um, you know, but I, I think for me now what I'm doing, I take my lessons that I've learned from all of those years and I, I love playing like with the people who are patiently sitting behind me uh, you know, Travis and Victoria and, and many other musicians who I know, I feel really lucky because I'm performing with some very, very clever, talented people who share the same vision as me, which is they like playing live music. You know, we like playing live music. And I particularly like, as a songwriter, the country, uh, rock, Americana, flavoured music. Uh, I find that's quite an exciting movement at the moment. 
um, people looking for something, you know, different. I, I like also because I come from a country rural area where my family and I live. People wear cowboy hats and they, they, they have animals and it's all natural. It's not a Hollywood film. That's the way it is. That's where it rolls, you know. That's where we live. I've known my place for 30 years and I've been through droughts. I've watched what happens in communities when they, they're suffering because of drought and people go through a lot of hardship or they, they, they can't own their farm anymore because they can't make enough money because it won't rain or these things happen. And, and yet most of us just assume that, you know, food comes from a supermarket, you know. What was the impetus behind this new solo album? Well, what, what, what were you experiencing that made you think, I want to put out an Americana-style album? And I have to say, right. I listened to it, and it's, it's Americana, <sighs> but it also has rock in there, so there's, there's a little bit of both. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of, of quite a few different genres of music, obviously, including country mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and Western and Americana and folk, and, but many other you know, forms of music that I've worked with over the years, including electronic music, you know, um, I believe it or not, I worked a lot with uh, synthesizers and co- you know, computer technologies and whatever. But I'm finding it more and more interesting in this era to not rely on that technology and just to rely on the skills, the human skill sets that people have. Uh, I think they are skill sets that are very, very important. And I really, really hope that the future generations keep that in mind as they, they you know, they go along. Um, you know, I. I think there's something very human and necessary musically in the communication of music to keep it real, you know. I mean, technology does amazing things. I mean, I think it's incredible, you know, in this era that that young people may not necessarily know how to play an instrument, but they can construct all this music, you know, and, and I think that's really exciting for them. But at the same time, I feel just like historically where, that, where country music, for example, started, or folk music and the combination of all these musics, you know, I like to think that um, that's how my album kind of came together. As a as a songwriter, I started thinking more and more about where did where did all this start in the first place? And if you've got to think of an era before ele- electricity, and it's not easy because you know I've lived a little bit without electricity on the farm when we've had blackouts or whatever, and but I, then I think, you know, I'm really fortunate because I collect my rainwater off, off a roof, you know, and, and God enables it to rain and you can drink water, you know, or you can go over there and you can grow that in, in the ground and then you can eat it, you know. Uh, you don't need electricity to do that. It just happens anyway, you know. But everything that we're dealing with right now and everything we're going through at the moment is where I think... We're in this huge transition where electricity has taken us to somewhere. I still don't see a guide manual anywhere of where this is all heading. That's all. I, uh, I wish someone could explain it to me exactly. Um, but I know that we're, we're all doing it together. We're all in it together, right? I, I'll add this as well. I just want to say that how I got started with making my own album was that I've always been a songwriter. So I had lots of songs that I'd recorded in very rough demo form, you know, either with myself singing or perhaps if I was co-writing with someone else, they were singing. And I had all these songs and I just 
I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do with all this? You know, um, I like some of them, some of them are okay. That one I'm not so crazy about. What will I do with all this? And then I realized, particularly when I got to Nashville, the, the, um, the group of people, the collection of people or the community is a better word, of like-minded people who are very, very good at performance, you know, playing their instruments, very talented people. I thought, well, I'll get some people together and we'll just track some of my demos, you know. But running parallel to that was my interest in Australiana, like old bushrangers, outlaws. And in, also I love, I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to the old West in America, but both have a parallel history that's similar. And so when I started tracking my demos and, you know, I realized, I began to realize I could make an album if I steer it in a certain direction where I'm actually connecting how I feel about uh, where we've arrived at with everything. That's why I tried to think what would it have been like before electricity when I was writing a lot of lyrics, you know, and thinking, well, you know, what, how would people have thought, you know? And I, one of the things that began to occur to me was if you really wanted to, you know, romantically in one sense, you'd get on a ship and you'd just go somewhere else or you'd get on a horse and ride off into the sunset, literally, you know, um, right? And it's hard to imagine that now because everything's so, you know, mechanised, if you like, you know. Um, and so I began to steer my lyrics more towards writing that kind of thing, you know. It's hard to imagine in the world we live in surviving without electricity or all these things that mm -hmm. we have. We're very out of touch with, um, with the earth, so to speak. And, um, you know, I think that, that when you do get in touch with it, when you leave the city, and uh, I think it's very inspiring. And I, I was listening to some of the songs, and it seemed like there was a real um, connection to the American West in the yeah. music. Yeah, well, um, that... I was actually in, that started really a fire in me when um, I'd been songwriting in Nashville, you know, doing co-writes and, and the way that they do it in this town and they do it really well, like really well. Um, but I took a horse riding adventure trip with my wife Marlena down along the Mexican border and we met uh, a gentleman by the name of Craig Lawson who who's passed away since. And uh, that's why I dedicate my album to him and his wife, Tam, because Craig and Tam, he was a wrangler and he owned a cattle ranch down there. And like I own a farm and we went out horse riding and he just gave us an education on horseback about that old West area. And we were literally riding through canyons where you could still see stagecoach tracks in the ground. I'm not talking about vehicle, modern vehicles or rubber tires. I'm talking about, and I'm like, how did you know this was here? He said, because I ride all through this country and I know where it is, all this you know, wilderness area. And I was riding around looking at old silver mines and all this stuff, and I'm looking around, I'm going, this is not a Hollywood movie. This is real. The, these people actually did all these things. And up the road is Turnstone, you know, and over there is Mexico. Right, and there would have been pioneers. There would have been settlers. There would have been no electricity. You had outlaws. You had the settlers. You had all the First Nations people, and the parallels with Australian early history are very similar. 
And that's what I'm saying. I more and more began to realize I know what I need to do now. I understand what kind of album I want to make. I, I, I'm not just being, you know, retro. I, I was actually, I got inspired. I, I, I felt emotionally, I, could, I know how to do this now. I know what I'm doing, you know, artistically. So where was the album recorded? Um, some of it in Nashville and some of it in Australia. Uh, some of it, I have a home farm studio. It's a, it's a humble studio, but it sounds good. And it's the only recording studio I've ever been in that has an open fireplace in it. You can put a log in the fire if you want. Um, and I like the relaxed feeling of that, but I wanted the... Uh, I wanted the immediacy of the recordings, like a lot of the recordings that are on my album, I haven't, I didn't track layer them, you know, like I'll start with this track and I'll add that track and then we'll add this track and I'll do that. I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to have an immediate immediacy to the album where a lot of it was tracked very quickly. The song My Cajun Girl that's on the album was tracked in one take. Um, just one take. You think that's more in line with how people used to record, so you get a that's different right. sound? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and what happens is, is that I think there's something magical happens, uh, or perhaps magic. I don't like that word that much. I think, I think it something human happens where you 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 you're working off each other in, in real time, you know, as as people. And, and, and someone goes, oh, I can hear what he or she's playing. And then they, they work off that. And then that's how the recording really has some really, you know, really interesting definition to it sometimes, you know. And I can hear it on a lot of the older recordings of very, you know, from old school people, you know, back in the jazz era and whatever and, and country, early country music too, um, you know. Um, uh, you know, I think... Uh, but I'm fortunate, really, to be able to talk about any of this. Um, and I also am grateful for the people who helped me uh, perform on my recordings and some of the people who co-wrote with me as well, um, uh, particularly um, you know, writers such as James Dean Hicks and Buck Johnson, uh, Kieran Gribben, uh, you know, Marty Fredrickson. Uh, but I'm also pleased with the songs I wrote by, by myself I'm learning to have more confidence in that. So, yeah. Well, you've also written some songs for other people, I know. And um, yeah. do you like writing for other folks as well as yourself? Yes, I do. And the, one of the things I, I've also really enjoyed is, is working with people from different nationalities and different, you know, backgrounds. You know, uh, you know I've, I've worked... Um, yeah, I worked a lot with 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 other people, uh, and in different countries too. Um, uh, especially when in the years when I was working with NXS, you know, I'd, we would record in Italy, or, or, or France, or uh, you know, or London, or wherever we were. Spain, I recorded in Spain, um, Japan, um, India. And, um, you know, and all of those cultural experiences are, are really important too to me that I, I, like to, uh, I like to bring everything that I can into, 
into my recording process, you know, like uh, experiences and things that people have met, things I've learnt from watching some very, very clever people, you know, with me and around me and engineers, record producers, that sort of thing, you know, yeah. Would you say this collection of songs is one that people can sing around the campfire back to what you were talking about, which is people playing instruments and actually singing and without maybe all the electronics? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's quite a few songs, actually. Um, I think probably uh, Come Midnight would be one. I'd say Apache Pass, uh, which was one of the first songs that I wrote on the album that really began to define what my album was going to be. Um, from those experiences of, of those, I don't know how to put it, but trying to do research or exploring in the areas where, where people did things in a different era. Um, I look for it at home too in Australia. I like going out to remote places and, and just looking around and, and not, you know, not just looking at, a monument or something, you know, but actually just going to places that are remote, you know, um, they're really interesting. Mm. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the entire album and uh, Great. it's, it's yeah. now a part yeah. of my playlist. <laughs> so okay. um, will you be touring for the album or? Yeah, you know, I'd love to do that. Well, I've already started playing, uh, you know, I've, I've got a great posse of musicians with me and we're headed uh, to play Song of the Mountains uh, in Virginia um, uh, at Marion there, a famous, beautiful old theatre. And then we do the same thing. Uh, that's on the 6th of uh, August. And then we go and play on the 22nd of August at Wood Songs, which is Michael Jonathan's folk kind of set up that he's got there. I think it's beautiful old Lincoln Theatre, I think it is. And then... Um, a very famous place as well, but very much, um, that is very much old country, roots areas, you know, that's in Lexington, Kentucky, um, bluegrass particularly, uh, folk and, and country style shows that I'll be doing it at first, yeah, I want, that's where I want to start off, yeah, playing that well, Selfishly of speaking, we want to get you down to Memphis, so we're going to have to make that happen at some point. <laughs> Yeah, we'll go electric at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, Andrew, it was just a pleasure having you on Diddy TV. Um, Andrew Ferris, the new album, it's out. It's so, your solo album. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of it. And we wish you the best in your next endeavor and also on your tour. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. I heard a roaring just like thunder, like a waterfall. I climbed a mountain through a forest And I have felt it all and heard the final call Oh, say I, say I, don't cry Tears 
down a river through a jungle We saw the ruins of the progress The destruction of proud and ancient world Oh, say I, say I, don't cry Tears in the rain Oh, say I, say I, don't cry Seasons will change Tears in the rain Or do we want to know? Or do we walk away? What's gonna make a change? What do we have to say? Hey, oh, hey, or This is a latest single I got out called You Are My Rock. And um, uh, we're going to play the whole thing, I guess. <laughs> okay, right, okay. Um, here we go. One, two, three, one. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for being here with me. Thank you for being in my dream For days you fill with happiness Filling up my emptiness Wanna thank you for showing me some peace You are my rock My everything You are my rock My own There are no storms on a hurricanes Across several oceans and drowning rain You won't be changed Won't be changed Well, I see people out in the street Out in the street They're just trying to make ends meet My neighbors and their families with responsibilities Building all their dreams upon a rock 
You're always wild and you won't be changed You're like a fire never to be tamed You're standing tall in the driving rain You are my rock Are you are my rock, my only one, my everything? Where is this leading to? I dedicate my song to you. Another fool without a clue. Who needs a rock? Hey. Are you on my rock? Well, thank you for being a crazy friend. You're crazy at the start and not the end. Well, I raise my glass and toast your hell For being strong when I needed help For being real when everyone pretends You are my rock My everything You are my rock My only one My everything there are no storms on a hurricanes Cross seven oceans and burning plains And I know you just won't be tamed You are my That's it for this hour, folks. Keep up with Andrew Ferris by visiting his website and social media pages. And be sure to listen to his self-titled debut album and tell a friend or two about it while you're at it. Touring is still important to him, so look for Andrew on the road when he visits a city near you. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 